This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Armand Gildas, and I'm one of the hosts of the Anthropology Channel here at the New Books Network. Today, I have the great pleasure of hosting Anna Ramos-Sayas to talk about her wonderful book, Parenting Empires, Class, Whiteness, and the Moral Economy of Privilege in Latin America, which was published in 2020 by Duke University Press. Let me introduce our guest first. Anna Ramos-Sayas is Frederick Clifford Ford Professor and Chair of the Program in Ethnicity, Race, and Migration at Yale. She is also faculty in American Studies, Anthropology, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. She is the author of National Performances, Class, Race, and Space in Puerto Rican Chicago, Street Therapists, Affect Race and Neoliberal Personhood in Latino Newark, and the co-author of Latino Crossings, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and the Politics of Race and Citizenship. Her most recent book, Parenting Empires, which we will be talking about today, examines the parenting practices of Brazilian and Puerto Rican upper classes as these outer urban landscapes provide moral justifications for segregation, surveillance, and foreign mentions, and recast idioms of crisis, corruption, and austerity according to dictums of the U.S. empire. So welcome, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. No, it's my pleasure. Um, and yeah, I'll start with a question that I heard from another podcast host, Eliza Arijan, uh, and I will kindly borrow it because I liked it a lot. So how did you come to anthropology? Wow, I hadn't been asked that in such a long time. And in part, it is because even though... My formal training is in anthropology and in one of the probably most traditional anthropology departments in the U.S. Um, I have been always with a foot out of anthropology. So ever since I started um, an academic career, I've always been in joint position. So anthropology and Latin American and um, Caribbean studies, anthropology and Latinx studies, anthropology and ethnicity, race and migration. But how did I come to anthropology? Um I was one of the few people that came to anthropology in a very random way. When it was time, I, I major, I did my undergraduate work in economics, and I was more of a quantitative person for a long part of my life. Um, and then when it was time to apply for graduate schools, I really I realized that the classes that I had liked the most had been classes, one in anthropology and a few in Latin American studies. So I decided to apply to a range of programs. I applied to history programs. I applied to Latin American studies programs. I applied to anthropology programs. And then um, the ones that I, that I um, when, when, when I got accepted into them, the one the thing that was the determining factor in choosing was that I wanted to be in New York City. Um, so it really narrowed it down to the ones that I had applied to in New York City, which were NYU and Columbia. And so, and both of them were in Anthro. And eventually then I, I ended up um, choosing Columbia, but it was really that random. 
So I had taken one anthropology course as an undergraduate before arriving in this graduate program. Um, and I really thought that I would just do a master's degree and then drop out. Uh, so and the reason for that was, you know, if you do a master's degree, they don't they don't give you funding for a master's degree. So you have to pay. So I said, I cannot just do that. So I would have to apply for a PhD and then drop out after the master's program. So I joined, um, you know, and to my surprise, um, I actually loved it. I, I was immediately um, paired up with um, Professor Catherine Newman, who was at Columbia at the time. And she was doing a project in Harlem in the service economy. And she chose a few of us, um, John Jackson being another one of that group, to be um, her research assistants. And so we would go and work at McDonald's um, as work, you know, take field notes and do all that. And I really thought that was the greatest thing. I found it really fun. I love writing field notes. And one thing led to another and I ended up staying the whole time and finishing. <laughs> so so I don't have any more compelling um reason like I know people who are like oh my god ever since I was 12 I knew that this was my life passion it was nothing like that for me um I'm glad uh, you know and um and to this day despite whatever criticism I may have of the field um I am very committed to ethnography as a method um and that's one thing that has remained consistent um in my academic life regardless of what departments I mean, so, yeah. Well, the discipline should be thankful for this coincidental or <laughs> not coincidental, but still. Uh, it's very random. <laughs> random to anthropology. Um, and how did this, how did Parenting Empires come about? Yeah, so Parenting Empire was a, a pretty significant departure for what I had been doing up to that point. Uh, my first book, which was uh, based on my dissertation, was on nationalism in Chicago and Puerto Rican nationalism. And it involved trying to understand why I grew up in Puerto Rico thinking of Puerto Rican nationalism as something so incredibly positive, whereas nationalism as a whole tends to be so negative in, in, in a way, right? So that was my main question for that um, project and for my dissertation. And it was very, um, you know, different kinds of nationalist um, scholars of nationalism were really influential back then, like even Partha Chatterjee, like back in the day. And so, so anyway, so there were, it was, it was really interesting to try to understand Puerto Rican nationalism from this more global perspective. So that was um, the first book that I did. And it was based on the Puerto Rican community of Chicago, which tends to be a very working class uh, immigrant community that emerged probably in the 50s and 60s, a little earlier than that. Um, then the second book uh, was also among working class immigrant populations, uh, this time in Newark. And I focused on the distinction between recent um, immigrants from Brazil and longstanding U.S. born generations of Latin American immigrants uh, from mostly Puerto Rico, but also Dominican Republic and other places. So I was trying to compare how that process of understanding the U.S. racial politics, how it happened for immigrants, uh, because we know that, you know, people come from all sorts of parts of the world with their own ideas of what 
race looks like, what racial inequality is like. And when they arrive in the U.S., they also face different kinds of understandings and and processes of racial formation. So um, I was trying to understand the role that U.S.-born Latinx populations played in teaching, in a way, newer Latin American arrivals about the U.S. racial system. And Newark being a predominantly African-American city uh, was particularly fruitful for that kind of um, of exploration and question. So those had been my two main books. I had also done, you know, this collaborative work on Mexicans and Puerto Ricans in Chicago with uh, with a colleague. And but basically, I had always done work focused on Latinx working class communities in the U.S. So when I uh, one of the so there were like. Probably three main things, um, three main reasons why this book, this parenting empires happen. The main, the first one was like while, while I was doing my uh, street therapist, which is the book on Newark about Puerto Rican um, and Brazilian migrants. Um, many of the Brazilian immigrant families were returning to Brazil at that time. I mean, it was a time when Lula da Silva was, um, it, Brazil, Brazil was very prosperous during that time, and the U.S. was not. There was a recession. It was 2007, 2008. So I actually followed some of those uh, families from Newark back to Brazil, to, their, to where they were from, and did some research there. So I was kind of familiar with the with Brazil. I had uh, colleagues in Brazil at the time that were doing really interesting work. Uh, so when when it was time to decide on a future book, book project, um, I remember that Brazil being in my sort of general mindset of like how many common things there were between Brazil and Puerto Rico where I grew up. Uh, the other thing that had happened at the time is that I had just given birth to my son. And one of the things that nobody tells you is that 99% of the agony of having a child has to do with the parents that you meet or the social expectations that, that are put on you, not even just the nights losing sleep as much as this other social world. So that was another thing that just took me by surprise and sort of like my entire um, focus at the time was to try to figure this out. So that was another reason why I shifted to parenting. But one thing that I that also the last thing that also contributed to to this shift was that whenever I would present um, my books on um, race in the U.S., oftentimes people will tell me, will say, you know, where is privilege in this analysis? Where is where is whiteness? Like in the context of Newark, the fact was that most uh, whites had uh, left the city through white flight and through incentives to move to the suburbs. And that's why uh, blackness was the most operative form of racial formation in the city. So there was a whiteness behind this this um, analysis that I had not been very conscious of. Um, so I decided that I wanted to understand that other side of how race operate, not only the side that I was familiar with already, but also who who privileges from this. Um, and I could have done work in among U.S. whites, but... I really felt that 
Latinx studies had something to contribute to Latin American studies. And I felt that maybe focusing on Latin American elites and white elites in Latin America would be um, a more interesting topic. So that those were the things that put things in place, you know, the having a child and trying to figure things out, the fact that I was kind of familiar with Brazil because people had returned from the previous project, and also the fact that I felt that there was an incomplete understanding of power in my analysis in the previous work. Um, so that's when I decided to um, to kind of shift and focus on this when elites living in two specific neighborhoods in Latin America, one of them Ipanema, which is a global um, globally known uh, place. The other one is El Condado in San Juan, Puerto Rico, which is not globally known, but it is known regionally as a very upscale uh, place that resembles um, Ipanema in many ways, including physically. Um, like I, in my book, I present um, an aerial view of both, and they're pretty much indistinguishable. You know, they have a lagoon on one side. They are a co- they they have a coast to the Atlantic, and that also conditions people's understandings of health and of um, of being responsible about their bodies and about exercise and all of this. So, um, so that's what the, how the decision was made, and and there were many many moments in which I questioned, I second guessed my my decision because it's not easy, as many people know, to do multiple sites of fieldwork with multiple languages, multiple expectations of belonging or not, and very different histories and all of that. But it was worth it in the end. I think I learned a lot, and I actually um, can see myself in the future, continuing this kind of comparative work, so. No, I mean, I think the result is amazing. It was really a pleasure reading the reading the book. And also, I mean, this is also coming from a selfish place because I work on whiteness in Germany. So it's also wonderful to read a book in anthropology about whiteness. I would um, love to hear more about that maybe in another moment. But yeah, that sounds great. Yes. Um, how about the title Parenting Empires? How does it capture your project? Yes, so it had the, the title really means two things. It means um, the process of parenting an empire. So it's actually as a verb, like to parent an empire, to give shape, to socialize an empire, to to just guide an empire in, a, in an effective way, so from that perspective. But also the fact that parenting as a noun has become pretty much imperial in some ways. And I began just by trying to understand how everything related to parenting has become a major political statement or struggle, like whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, whether you sleep with your child or not co-sleep, whether, you know, like all these kinds of minute decisions that nobody had ever cared about and people just did, um, all of a sudden have become these gigantic um, discussions and, and, you know, and are shaping people's lives and communities' lives. So, so I, wanted, I wanted to try to understand both that element of how parenting has become this huge phenomenon, as well as what that does or why, what service that does 
to neighborhoods, to nation state, and even hemispherically. So that was the idea, to try to draw the thread from at, at, on all those scales of what parenting has come to mean, um, especially in the Americas, um, hemispherically. And I mean, yeah, this is a comparative study, and this is also something we don't see often in sociocultural anthropology, at least, but it productively raises issues and questions in your work and allows you to build regional arguments rather than national ones. Um, what were some of the... The truth is, it's, like, it's comparative in the sense it's not like necessarily comparing specific people or specific, um, you know, like it, it really, the comparison comes from understanding that there, there are loose relationships in how this particular topic is approached, even though we're not actually comparing the people or the individuals or the populations involved in each side. So it's really not a comparison of like how Brazilians do this versus how Puerto Ricans do this, but how does the phenomenon of parenting, what does it look like in all these different settings? How is it adapted to specific culture, cultural practices and agendas and um, even urban um, urban space. So yeah, so that like part of the comparison, it's, um, you know, I think is important too. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I would say it, it is a comparison oriented towards finding more the commonalities than the differences. So I think that in itself is a different project rather than the com- comparative projects we are familiar with. Yeah, because uh, ultimately there are few phenomena that, that overwhelmingly um, make a splash, right, in different places. And parenting has been one of them. I mean, we know more about the Euro-American practice of it. Uh, there's many great work coming out of the UK, um, France, um, actually even, you know, even different parts of Asia, the US. But the truth is that the practices that that become more central to these new forms of parenting definitely resonate across the the globe among elites. So, you know, if I say um, kids are expected to be taught like three different languages by, you know, whatever, like people don't see that this is weird or, you know, it's just like very expected that that's what everybody should do, you know. So it's taken for granted and it's very much resonating um, in a lot of different parts of the world. But I just wanted to really see why that is. I mean, when something resonates at that level, Obviously, this is not only about how you raise your child. You know, this this is about other things. And and I think that those other things are really way broader than just social reproduction. I mean, I think social reproduction is a piece of it. But I think that politically and at the level of neighborhoods, at the level of uh, nation states, at the level of hemispheric relations, I think all of that has an impact. No, I mean, some of the things I read in the book, I was like, oh, this is something I know from Turkey, for instance, it's where, where I'm from. So it's really, really global resonate. Yeah. Um, and one thing I really appreciated about the book is that it takes, as I said, whiteness seriously, which is something we don't see often in sociocultural anthropology. Why do you think that is? And how does whiteness play out in your book? Well, I think that the reason why whiteness has not been taken seriously in sociocultural anthropology and it has been taken seriously in other interdisciplinary fields um, 
is partly related to how anthropology views studies of the U.S. and of overall, quote unquote, um, developed countries. And the and even those anthropologies has shifted away from the study of the village and the, you know, and the remoteness of, of the field and all of that. There are certain categories and hierarchies that linger in anthropology. And even to this day, I think that the most uh, exotic your field seems to most people, uh, the higher the degree of uh, cultural capital you carry in this field. So the fact that a lot of the whiteness um, studies formally uh, came out of U.S. legal studies and the U.S. has never been viewed as a great um, anthropological field site in general, I think that that's part of why anthropology has not taken whiteness as seriously uh, until recently, I believe. And so, you know, whiteness did not emerge as a regular anthropological construct. It's not like kinship. It's not like social network. You know, it's, so it has come from other interdisciplinary fields into anthropology. Um, and I, I think that now we might start seeing distinctions Um but also in terms of how people have developed more nuanced understandings of race and how the approaches to racial inequality have required, really, I mean, have demanded that we take certain things more seriously, um, including um, the entire picture of what racial inequality is, not only, you know, isolating racial inequality in terms of um belonging to some groups and not others or not implying others, but actually in a more holistic way. So so I think that that's why, even though anthropology in the past has not paid that much attention to whiteness, I think that we may see a shift or we are starting, I think, to see some shifts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And I mean, in your book, you're also making an intervention to critical whiteness studies. Yes. Um, Would you and it, like to talk a bit about that? Sure. Um, I mean, I think that just like we know that, um, that you know, the, the genesis of the field, you know, it's very rooted in this kind of legalistic models in the U.S., and that's very valuable. Um, I do think that it's time that we sort of um, flesh out uh, those understandings to, under, to, to get gain a better sense of how this type of phenomenon plays out in other parts of the world and what that can tell us about the U.S. proper or, you know, even other other parts of the world. Um, so I think that that, um, considering the very um, rich literature and scholarship on Latin America and Latin America, race in the, in the America, especially in Latin America, um, I think that that is an area of the hemisphere that can definitely provide um, new perspectives on whiteness. Uh, and because there's so much studies 
on race in Latin America, all of which tends to focus on blackness or indigeneity. Because we already have that, I think making the intervention in whiteness already comes built upon a really amazing canon of studies of race. So it's not that we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just adding to something that is already very well established and um, done very well most, most of the time. So. And maybe following up on that, my favorite chapter is chapter four, where you talk about elite interiority and interior currency. And it is my favorite chapter because I'm personally interested in such spiritual practices. How did you come to work with the spiritual interiority and interior currency? Well, it's funny that you mentioned this because this is the, the chapter that is actually be, being followed up on. So that, that that chapter has been spun in a different way going forward in the work that I'm doing now. So that is the one chapter that I felt, um, you know, that was intriguing to me, that I could develop more, that I was still interested in after spending all these years in this book. Uh, and that I'm continuing to develop. And I actually, in collaboration with several colleagues, I mean, um, there is a an edited volume coming on, you know, how to use affect as method. And I drew, I drew a lot from that chapter um, and likewise on other studies. Anyways, so yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to highlight in terms of whiteness is that a lot of times when people examine whiteness, the assumption is that you're going to, or even elites, the assumption is that you're going to find all these people who are very superficial, who are just like the ones that we would hate to be with, that we would not like to talk to them, that it's just unbearable. And so it continues to reduce whiteness to something that only bad people or superficial people do. So what I was trying to do was to show how even when that, it, it, that whiteness can, can thrive, even when that is not the case. Um, so I didn't want to focus on gated communities, populations in gated communities. I didn't want to focus on the superficial, media-driven, consumption-driven people, because we all know, you know, those are the, the prototypes that we have associated with whiteness. I wanted to really see other people who are, um, who are people that we, many of us in academia would consider great people, that we may have even friends that are like that, right? So that's also why I focus on these very um, progressive, in quotes, progressive neighborhoods rather than just these gated areas. So one of the things that came out of this, like, and this came out from the ground after I had been interviewing people for a while and trying to look, I had been looking for that superficial, you know, the typical superficial woman who's all about cosmetic surgery and diamonds and brand clothing. And I never found her in Ipanema. I mean, there were a couple of people, but they were in the minority and everybody would make fun of them. So what was it that I found? Well, I found people who were incredibly invested in interiority, what I, what I came to understand as interiority projects. And by that, I mean anything that involves uh, cultivating the self on a psychological, emotional, or even spiritual way. So people attending, uh, people having life coaches, people doing a lot of, um, you know, engaging in a lot of orientalist uh, projects as well, going to ashrams, uh, you know, obviously the yoga, which is almost like a, like a gym thing now. But, you know, so, so doing all these different kinds of works directed at self-cultivation. 
And, you know, and my thing was, you know, what role does that attention to the inner self has been playing in parenting as well as in elite, elite formations? And so that's why this idea of interior interiority currency came about. I mean, the fact that it was very clear that part of how this whiteness operate was under the expectation that everybody should aim to self-cultivate. And by everyone, I mean, you know, even the domestic workers should aim for that, according to the people that I interview. And of course, if you could do that, presumably without having, it's not about money, ultimately, right? It's about this, this like, um, this very intangibles. So why could people not, you know, apparently this is available to everybody. So I wanted to see how those discussions uh, really emerged and what that projects did. And surely, you know, these projects were the ways in which wealthy people could maintain a moral, a moral approach to wealth. So nobody wants to be the awful, you know, bratty, wealthy person. People, especially in countries of great inequality, as is the case of Brazil and Puerto Rico, uh, are forced, like the elites are forced to explain how they came to be elites. That's not something that they can avoid anymore. Um, so, and nobody wants to explain that in ways that makes them seem or see themselves as a bad person. Um, so there are moral ways in which people try to, uh, or there are ways in which people try to morally justify their position and their privilege. And a lot of that moral economy is really depending on how these interiority projects take place. And this is across gender lines, which is something that I always get asked. Like, I mean, people always assume that if I'm talking about parenting and talking about women and reality, it was almost evenly split between, um, it, they were all heterosexual couples. That is, the, the, the queering piece is not as strong there. And it could have been. And it just, at, at one point, it was just, it just felt that it was like another, it's just too much. But, um, but it is definitely very evenly split between um, fathers and mothers. And so uh, parenting requires a particular kind of new man. And that's also part of this interiority currency. So it's no longer this generational thing which the father has the best place at the table and everybody has to bow to the father and all of these things. And it's not that at all. I mean, in order for this for these families to maintain their status and their privilege and justify it morally, it requires that fathers are what they call very hands-on. So there is a lot of those fathers that are wealthy fathers that, you know, are expected to be seen with their children in public spaces and are expected to be as involved. And whether that plays out or not, that, you know, that varies, but it definitely, that's the expectation. So that they are like a new man. And if they're not like that, that means that they're probably less cosmopolitan or, um, you know, it, it that kind of like distant parenting, distant fatherhood is actually associated and projected onto working classes rather than the elites. So... I mean, this is fascinating to listen to. I can, yeah, I can ask you too. But the, but the, but it's it's interesting. Like, yeah, and I wonder, I wonder. Like, I'm always intrigued by how, without falling into psychology uh, and 
you know, continuing to treat the mind in a sociological way, uh, how we can develop better, better methodologies to understand that. And so, um, yeah, so part of what I was hoping to do and did a little bit of was to sit in life coaching sessions um, for people that would allow. So there were a couple of life coaches at the time that were very prominent and everybody kind of went to them. And this is not so much in the book, it's more in what I'm doing now. But um, And so I was able to sort of sit with it in those sessions that became Zoom sessions very quickly, Skype. And then, um, and so to try to better understand the sociological piece behind these kind of uh, therapeutic encounters. Um, and so that part of it is not as reflected in that chapter, but it's something that came out of that, of those conversations that do appear in the chapter. So, And I mean, uh, one part of, I mean, the one of the pillars of the book is the child-centered nodules of urbanism. So there's a spatial aspect to this whole thing. Um, what kind of role do they play in parenting empires? Yeah. Um, they play the huge role of transforming urban space. I mean, there's very little that once people say, I'm doing this in the name of my child or of children, that is a conversation stopper that really gives you license to do all sorts of things, especially when you're in a position of privilege and power. And sure enough, most of the narratives around transformations of urban space, about policing, about surveillance, had as a main impetus, or at least in, in, in the narrative was drawn, so that it had to do with protecting children. So... In terms of urban spaces, there were several moments in which spaces that had been considered um, spaces of sexual experimentation, queer spaces, spaces of, uh, you know, few spaces in which there was some across class, across race existence, coexistence, those places were quickly er being erased. And they were being erased, and what was being put in place. Uh, were generally playgrounds or, you know, mommy and me classes or kids boutiques or toy store, you know. So a lot of the things that substituted them were things that involved um, the quote-unquote welfare of children. So in the case of Brazil, this was done by courting off parts of the beaches, of the public beaches, uh, and putting, like, water toys and, and, you know, just like things for, for babies and, um, and also securing, like many of these parents had, um, you know, the municipal police in their speed dial, um, you know, so they had a direct access, you know, so they could say, oh, you know, there is somebody suspicious and I'm here with my child and, you know, and the expectation is that, that would take precedence and priority over anything else. I mean, to maintain that child's um, presumably, you know, it's well, his or her well-being. Um, so that's one thing that I found very intriguing, like how spatially, I mean, this was a material reflection of all those other um, narratives, right? I mean, this is like how materially, the material consequences of this kind of parenting in a very local, specific, tangible way. Uh, 
And in, in Puerto Rico in particular, I mean, areas that had been considered among the few areas of safe queer spaces um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, had been completely, I mean, pretty much virtually erased uh, in favor of this, you know, beachside playgrounds, uh, Ben and Jerry ice cream parlor, you know, all these other sorts of configuration. And of course, you know, it's very difficult to, I mean, it's such an easy thing to deploy, like the, the image of the child and especially certain children, but, you know, they don't, you know, but like that, it, it's so easy to deploy that for all sorts of ways, in all sorts of ways. And, um, and of course, when I say this, I don't mean it to sound that um, strategic in a way. Like, I think that people are not just saying, I'm going to sit here and plan this, you know, like how to gain, you know, this space or whatever. How to I, I do think that they believe deeply um, that they're doing this for the welfare of their children. And I do believe deeply that they think that there's nothing more important than their child's well-being. I genuinely feel that, like, I genuinely think they feel that. And so, and of course they're validated at every turn. Um, so, so it's, it's not as like deliberate or, you know, as, 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 as it may seem. Yet, I guess the consequences are as if it was deliberate. Yeah. Um, I also want to ask you about doing research among the elites. Uh, what was it like? What were some of the maybe some uh, surprising ethnographic encounters for you? For me, the most surprising ones, to be honest, is that I, like maybe many people who are not from that group, I had my own images of what that group was. Uh, and and it was a very homogenous and very almost cartoonish image, um, and that was not what I found, you know. And 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 that doesn't justify or make anything less whatever. But but it was a constant um, struggle between oh wow this person is really nice like you know she's just like so many academic friends that I have who you know, do yoga and eat quinoa and like, you know, whatever. Right. Um, but so, so, the, so that was like a little bit unexpected, I think. Um, another unexpected thing was the, this, the difference between reaching this group in Brazil versus reaching it in Puerto Rico, where I'm from. And what I found more surprising is that in Puerto Rico it was harder. And I don't know why I found that more surprising, but I think I think because of the scale, Puerto Rico being a smaller um, elite, a smaller country, um, either you were known to be in that group or you were not. In Brazil, you were not expected to know every other elite family there because, of course, the scale of the country. So I think in Brazil there was more flexibility and fluidity um, and therefore it was easier to kind of jump in and sort of talk to people and ask for connections. And, um, and of course, you know, in that case, because I wasn't from Brazil, I was from a country that they had probably never heard of, or like, at least if they had, it was like very, you know, very JLo, Ricky Martin, Menudo type of thing. 
uh, then Despacito came up and that was also, but, you know, because they had like, so the, so the references, the lack of specific reference to my country and to this understanding actually work on my favor because I was just some kind of like person from somewhere out there in the Caribbean near Cuba who lived in New York, you know? I, so it was very, it, it was harder to, in, in the case of Puerto Rico, because I grew up there and I knew the schools that people thought were good. And I knew the country clubs that people go to. Like I, I had never been to them, but I knew what they were. Um, was It was trickier uh, because I I think if I had been, if I had attended one of those five schools that everybody goes to, or if I had gone to the parties at the two clubs that everybody goes to, I would have a more immediate access and, and, and the, and the issue of intimacy would have happened quicker. Like, you know, so like of having these intimate conversations. Um, so that took longer. And I was always, always more like self-conscious there, you know, like, I, I don't know. It's just a lot of things that you start thinking about when, you know, and, and another thing is like, I mean, just stuff of like, what do elites wear? You know, I mean, it's not super straightforward. And so like in Brazil, you know, there's like this beach glamour type of thing. People are very tall. Uh, I mean, you know, like it, it or elites, elites are very tall. So I'm very short. I'm like 5'3". So, so, you know, it's like all these different kinds of very silly but embodied ways of being in the field are sort of become, you become more aware of them. At least I became more aware of them with the studies of the elites than I had in any of the previous studies that I've ever done. And so. And I mean, lastly, I want to ask you about your writing practice. Um, I mean, this is a beautifully written vivid ethnography. So what are your secrets? What does your writing process look like? Um, you know, I, if I hadn't, if I hadn't been in this career, there are two things that I would have done. One of them would have been either being a photojournalist the other one would have been being like a sort of writing coach or editor or something like that. I love writing. I learned English writing late in life. I, I was alphabetized or whatever. Like I learned all these things in Spanish. Um, writing to me, I'm somebody who's always either, li- I always live in my head either in the past or in the future, right? In the past, they say that if you live in the past, that causes depression. If you live in the future, that causes anxiety. The only real way of being healthy mentally is to live in the present. The only times, there's very few times in in life, in everyday life that I am in the present. And one of them is when I write. So for me, writing has never been something that I dread, but quite the opposite. I think writing is my Zen space. Writing is the thing that I start doing. And then when I look at the, at the clock, it's like three hours later. So I'm not sure if that makes me a bad person to give, you know, because I don't have a practice. Like I've never been the kind of person that can say, oh, I'm going to dedicate half an hour to my writing every day or an hour. I, I cannot anticipate how much I will dedicate. It may be that there is a day that I can only dedicate five minutes. It may be that there's a day that I want to dedicate five hours. And if I can do it, I will. So I don't have a practice in that sense. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, and it, it's strange to it's strange because I realize that 
there are a lot of practices out there that work for people and that uh, that there's quite uh, you know and but i just in that sense i just it's hard for me to to identify because i all that i want to if i could what i would be doing is is writing right i mean so and writing i mean also like in connection to the to the actual researching too because i think it's it's a kind of writing right i mean it's not that i'm going to sit and write a novel i doubt that i would ever like do that but but i could but but it's more writing in terms of understanding people's voices better and understanding the dynamics of what happened for me uh that happens through writing i i'm always like i i I've seen that there are like in general among my colleagues and friends, like two kinds of, or, you know, like two kinds of ways in which people express themselves. Like there are the people that are fantastic responding to questions uh, publicly and they can answer and give you the most insightful, nuanced, clear analysis just by answering a question in a, in a, in a forum. I cannot do that. Like for me, I need to sit with it. I need to write it out and then I can answer that. And so I guess writing to me is also a way of clarifying my thoughts in a way that I couldn't do in any other way. Um, you know, I may be able to do it through photography, but that's, you know, but, but not in any other way that is like more academic. Um, so, yeah, so I don't have, I, I, all that I ha- all that I can say is that I hope that, um, that everybody understands that there there is a way to be joyful about writing, to see writing not as a dread and not as a... I mean, we always see it at times. It's always that, right? I mean, if you have a deadline, of course, you know, it may, it may be that like one day, but it shouldn't be that all the time. This is a very privileged... Uh, and, and I mean privileged not, you know, like in every academic setting that I've been, whether at Rutgers, CUNY, now at Yale. Writing to me is the privileged part of what we do. Um, and so, yeah, like, it's not like we're nurses and we're like lifting patients. I mean, that's, I always use the example of the nurses and I'm sure my, my grad students hate me for that, but, but it's like that thing of like, let's refocus and consider what a privileged space academia is especially when it is so insulated from all the, you know, all, all sorts of other stuff, which is how it is the case in the U.S. oftentimes. Well, it was it was such a pleasure talking to you, Anna. Thank you Thank so you much so for joining much. us, and I look forward to our past. Yes, and at again. some point, I would love to hear about your own research. It sounds wonderful, the whiteness in in Germany piece. So we'll, I'm sure that we'll reconnect sometime. Thank yes, you so thank much you so for much. the interview. It was my pleasure. This is the new New Books Network, and I'm your host, Armand Gildas. Until next time. <laughs>